Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The legendary New York Studio School marathons are immersive courses that emphasize experimental learning and expand the boundaries of what drawing, painting, and sculpture can be. Fall 2020 virtual intercession marathons take place November 5th through the 9th. Artists from anywhere in the world are invited to participate in a five-day virtual marathon. Each course is designed to expand upon essential themes and working methodologies in art making. Apply online today at nyss.org and follow them on Instagram at ny underscore studio school. Krista Kim is a contemporary artist and founder of the Techism movement since 2014 promoting the confluence of art and technology and technological innovation as a medium to further the development of digital humanism. Krista gathers digital images of LED lights to digitally paint and manipulate them using multiple softwares to create her artwork, a technique that she has developed since 2012. Krista is interested in the disruptive interpersonal and social effects of digital technology as a force of distraction and segregation of people based on similar interests and likes through algorithms on social media. She seeks to communicate a transcendent meditative experience for the viewer in digital visual language, which she describes as digital consciousness. Krista was the chosen artist by creative director Oliver Lapidus for Lanvan for the fall-winter 2018 collection. Five of her artworks were selected as the inspiration of the color cards and digitally printed fabrics and leather goods for the collection. Krista has lived in Seoul, Tokyo, and Singapore. She's exhibited in New York, Paris, and worldwide art fairs. She earned her Master's of Arts in Fine Art from LaSalle College of Arts, Goldsmiths University of London in 2014, and she completed her undergraduate studies in political science at the University of Toronto. I spoke with Krista over the internet from her place in Toronto, for a talk about technology's role in our lives, in art, meditation, living in different countries, the effects of quarantine life, and much more. Here's our conversation. Um, so, yeah, so you're based in Toronto? Yeah. Is that right? Yes, I am. How long have you been yes, in yes. Toronto? Well, I am originally from here. I, I grew up in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And um, I left Canada um, after university. Um, I went to U of T, University of Toronto. I studied political science. So funny. Um, <laughs> and I left for Asia. Yeah. I left for Asia for 15 years. And, wow, that's, that's um, a good amount of time. I, yeah, it was really great. It was another chapter in my life. It's really great. I lived in Seoul uh, for five years. I lived in Tokyo for nearly four years. And then I, I lived in Singapore for five years. 
So. Well, what brought you to all that challenging? Was it stemming I, from political science in that interest or was it just to see the world or? Yeah, I just had this, uh, this urge to get up and go and leave my surroundings and just see the world. And, and uh, Asia always uh, fascinated me because, I mean, I used to visit Korea um, every two or three years to visit my grandparents with my mother and my sisters. Yeah. And um, it was a really a fascinating, amazing experience because I went there without any friends. I had to start over um, in each country. Um, well, it, it subsequently got easier because as I, as I gained friends in Seoul, I meet people uh, from Tokyo visiting Seoul and then I moved to Tokyo and then I, I meet up with those friends. And, you know, it's a small world, especially when you're in that part of the world, you really yeah. do run into the same people, especially in the expat community. Yeah. Which is fun. Yeah. yeah. So when so you, a um, beautiful experience. I, I can imagine. I mean, when you spent time over there too, I mean, this is placing two things together pretty quickly, but you know, I, and I've pretty much go to Japan every year to visit and in Tokyo, it's such a, you know, a high tech digital environment. I mean, there's always, yeah. it's always kind of a step ahead. Um, was technology something that was always part of your life or interests? I've always been interested in technology and uh, the newest gadgets in yeah. computers. Um, I've always been interested in the new and the next thing. Uh, that's always going to be uh, something that also informs my work um, as an artist. Um, because what, what really fascinated me living in different countries was, um, you know, stepping outside of your environment and, and sort of like putting yourself in a place where you look at the society in a macro level and, and then the world in a macro level and you make comparisons between different societies, one that's perhaps five years or 10 years ahead of the technological curve. And then, uh, then you go back to, I mean, North America is very advanced, but I mean, we have to admit that South Korea and, and Japan um, are very advanced in terms of adaptation of technology and how totally. that influences their lives, how it affects society. They're the ones who are already paying with their iPhones 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, they're paying for things already. And right. it was then where the world understood that, okay, this is where the world is heading. Um, uh, I think for me, it was like, uh, yeah, definitely technology and, you know, that sociological perspective right how it affects culture and how culture changes too because um the korea that my parents were used to is definitely <laughs> light years behind what it is now yeah and i find that asia changes very quickly especially definitely. korea korea more than japan actually japan is still very deeply rooted in its uh, tradition, very traditional society still. Yeah. Uh, Korea is traditional, but they adapt and they embrace technology much, much faster. And they're always seeking new advancements. And it's also part of the survival strategy. If you are such a small country, they realize that they have to be at the cutting edge to survive. Definitely. Really I feel like this, the travel to the States is a little more, I don't know, there's, there's a lot more, it's seemingly 
at least in the States, like Korean travel. And like, if you look at something like K-pop, I think that has blown up bigger than J-pop did just because it seems like in Korean culture, there's more of kind of a, a, a blending or like an, a taking in of the Western culture into music and stuff. And it's in like J-pop and stuff like that is a little more categorized and hermetically sealed in a way, I think. Exactly. Korean did your parents, I'm oh, sorry, I, did your parents come over, um, were they kind of influenced by technology at all or but did that come from them or was that something that you just branched out and that was something that you took to <laughs> they're not they're not my father's not in technology my father is actually uh, an acupuncturist and uh, a martial arts expert that's and, uh, uh analog technology <laughs> very analog very but analog all, but he always loved um having the newest phone he always like he was always into the newest technology yeah um, I do have an uncle who is married to my aunt Lucy, um, Uncle Alex, and uh, he is in software. Yeah. And, uh, he's got a software company here, and he was always a huge influence in terms of um, you know adapt adapting you know the new computers as they came out you know uh, starting from the nineties. I mean, we were really right. early adapters. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, in in the household, growing up was creativity something that was a big part of your life early on because it seems like like if you look at your bio it sounds as if you had a lot of other interests or you know it wasn't like you were necessarily someone who was like i'm going to be like at five years old i'm going to be an artist this is what i'm going to do with my life actually um, <laughs> is that what you were saying story. when i was five uh, we used to play um you know grown up and what would we do right yeah. we, and I would always role play as an artist. There you go. Woman. <laughs> as this woman. So I'd have a suitcase. And right. inside the suit, I mean, the briefcase, inside the briefcase was a, an actual palette. And I had pencil crayons, crayons, like drawing, which I was always drawing. And my parents, I think uh, my parents always knew that uh, I had an artistic uh, talent, an artistic flair, a creative flair. I was always creating, you know, yeah. always creating, whether it's a, uh, um, with my siblings, you know, role playing, let's do this, directing, let's, let's create this. I wanted to create things all the time. And uh, but my parents being um, hardworking immigrants, they thought, well, it's not very practical. My father, no, actually, my father was very free spirited. He's a very free spirited person. Yeah. But of course, the practicality comes into play. Like, uh, we don't know anyone in the family. We don't know anyone around us uh, who are actual professional artists or even in the creative field. Yeah. But actually, okay, here's the thing though. Um, martial arts is, is an art, right? Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> but it's, also, it's, it's in between the physical uh, exercise and then, of course, uh, yeah, creative, creativity. It's, it's an art form. So my father was like a practicing full on martial artist, and he's a pioneer of martial arts in, in Canada. I mean, he was like Bruce Lee level. I mean, yeah. um, so he would actually, uh, he was pretty much my creative mentor growing up because, um, you know, his daily discipline and practice of martial arts, like he'd bring it home. Like he'd be doing the splits on the floor, reading the paper, <laughs> we'd all be like, and he'd even like um, practice uh, chopping watermelons in half blindfolded with a samurai sword at home, things like this, you know? I mean, it was um, really that kind of a household where you just express yourself creatively. So yeah, I mean, yeah, when, when, <laughs> When I think about it, it was a very creative household. And my mother is extremely creative too. I mean, she's 
um, you know, good with her, you know, she was always making things very, very good with her hands and um, making our clothes even, you know, when we were really young, our Halloween costumes. Yeah, it's in my blood for sure. Yeah, it was there. And that's kind of, um, you were ahead of your time as far as this merging, the idea of merging an entrepreneurial spirit with the arts. Because the idea of like an artist with a briefcase, you know, like these days, artists do kind of like pay attention to, you know, the business side of what they're doing, or they're a little more cognizant of, you know, the nuts and bolts of, of making, you know, making a living as an artist. I mean, when I was in school, they never really taught you anything about, you know, the financial side or the gallery side or the nuts and bolts of like how you do this. They just focused on the work, you know, they were like, oh, this is what you need to do in the work. We're not going to, you know, taint your education with like, you know, business stuff. But nowadays, it's, I think it's a lot more common that, you know, you, you want to, I mean, kids are paying a lot of money for tuition for schools. You could, at least you could do is teach them a little bit about like what to do when you get out of this place. You know what I mean? You know, here's the thing, though. I really think that, um, you know, these archaic um, divisions of labor that were created during the Industrial Revolution. Okay, you're yeah. an engineer. You're an artist. You're an accountant. Let me, that's just bullshit. Right. All of that is gone and the world is fluid and we have to express ourselves fully yeah with all of our faculties and we have to learn skills everybody is an entrepreneur whether you're working for someone or not whether you're an artist whether it doesn't matter what you do you have to have entrepreneurial skills and social media is bringing that out in all of us right yeah we're all expressing ourselves and promoting what we do sharing what we do with the world and um we're all becoming very very um uh, like our own PR machines, right. right? We all we all have our, uh, you know, uh, Andy Warhol. If you were to live in this era, you'd, you'd see that okay, it's not only fifteen minutes. It's actually like we are all our own, um, you know, publishing company, our own media company, or all of this is available to us. All these tools, right? So, um, what does that? What does it mean to be an artist then? We have all this technology that's changed the landscape of how we communicate, how we, um, how we share um, our work, how we share ideas, and how is that relevant in a world that's changed so much? We also have to put into context of what does the world look like going forward. And uh, what I think, my theory is that, you know, this is the age of disruption. <laughs> we're sitting in it right now right 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 if this is not obvious to everyone then i'm sorry you really yeah. need to uh <laughs> see some therapists because the world is drastically changing um all of the divisions and the definitions and the institutions and the systems that existed since the industrial revolution are being disrupted yeah and um art art isn't the same realm art is but it's not about a disruption with art it's more of a fluid fluid adaptation um because the world has become a blank canvas i think that um art must um, now step into a role of creating a new world wait that's a that's a big statement so saying that the world now is a blank canvas when has the world never been a blank canvas well, here's the thing. It has, but within certain parameters, limited parameters of, of um, uh, 
creation because you know during the industrial revolution um you know with without social media um like really i think the impact through through literature through film through um beautiful rothko's and jackson pollock's and i i love these artists i'm mentioning them Mm -hmm. uh, they were able to change and expand human consciousness like this is what we do right we, we change culture we, we we create culture right, right. um and but i mean there were very limited parameters the system um was not a free-flowing um uh soundscape of diverse ideas the way it is now and the way it is now, it's, uh, you know, art cannot be expressed um, everywhere and anywhere, right? Yeah. And uh, all of these sort of like, you know, you had the church, you had religion, you had like all these things that were sort of like heavy and these ivory towers that existed, right? And then everyone yeah. was sort of like categorized. I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a Muslim. They're, they're very uh, binary thinking canonized but canonized voila and now those can the cannons are exploding <laughs> they're yeah. being exploded and now we're living in a blank canvas where um there are no more cannons we're creating them now that People see are, I, I love that the optimistic nature of that that is sort of the utopic look at it it's like now everything is open, right? Everything is possible. The lines are all blurred and there's no more canon. Yet the pessimistic side, I think one would say, is that the canon has been usurped by business or, you know, or the advertising or, you know, like the idea, I think we're all living in this right now, this idea that social media and the internet has created this platform where everyone has a voice but then you're seeing that a lot of that is becoming filtered into a kind of, you know, advertising medium and the message is becoming co-opted by groups. You know what I mean? It's not quite as, I don't know, I watched recently that's the social that, uh, documentary about social media and, and technology and, and I can't help but think about how when things totally open up, there's still, um, like I'll give you a good example with music remember when you were first able to download everything like Napster and all that came out. It was like, yeah. oh. and um, this, this idea, right. The wild west days. And then, you know, and music became kind of like formalized into a digital platform. Musicians thought, Oh, this is great. Like SoundCloud and I can get my stuff online on YouTube and anyone can hear it. But what happens is something like these streaming services come and they put everything up and then the musicians get paid almost nothing. It's awful. Yeah. So it kind of, it, it opens up the floodgates that everyone can have a voice, but then does it get diluted in a way to where, you know, that the intrinsic value of the artistic process is diluted by the big companies who are just pumping this stuff out there. Very good point. So let me, let me ask you a question, Brian. Sure. Why is it that the artist cannot create the platform, that the platform cannot be the art form? I mean, it, it does happen. I think what the conventional wisdom of art makers would say is we don't have time. Like if we want to spend our life sort of, you know, focusing on making the artwork, 
it's difficult to also run the gallery to talk to the collectors to ship the work you know to do all the other aspects of, of no, I, I i i understand sorry to interrupt but i understand no, no. the par the paradigm that you're thinking within is the paradigm of the existing structure of exactly. the market of art commerce right? right now let's think beyond that yes let's actually um think about the platform of of sharing and selling art on a bigger scale why not have a platform that's created by artists that favors artists that actually makes things fair that actually delivers the art to the people that they want to support the artist like these platforms are created by businessmen right and there's no there's no input from the artists but the artists are the golden goose see we we have always been sort of uh at the mercy of business but we should be at the head of the decision making and the entrepreneurial spirit of business to make a change right and this is the paradigm shift that i really hope um happens in the world and i'm very very um optimistic that it will um that artists will actually become entrepreneurs and create the systems that will actually enhance creative output but in a real equitable fair um nurturing way for the creative industry for the creatives and i i would like i think that this is the age of the rise of the creatives and the creatives just have to feel empowered and not feel so removed from technology Right. not feel so divided from business i think that artists should embrace the entrepreneurial spirit i believe that um that not everyone's going to be into this okay i mean everyone's different but there will be artists out there who have entrepreneurial um uh skills and yeah. and 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 spirit um and of course we actually have the same psychological profile according to jordan peters peterson we're both right. open Yeah. Both open. We're open to change, we're open to new challenges. Uh we are ignited by passion. We are we have different we're motivated by different things than a business person. Where a business person would probably be motivated um, you know, mostly to make uh money from what they do. Something that brings them passion. Yeah. But artists want to bring beauty and light into the world. artists want to enlighten the world people artists want to make that kind of a direct impact that's not always something that you can um uh quantify or monetize but you know it's something that's very important for all right. of us um and i think especially since the quarantine since covid and everyone is listening to music everyone is reading good books everyone is um uh, being nourished by the art that's created by artists and uh you know i think that artists have to realize that we can and we can affect change we can collaborate with with uh, other businessmen and and create enterprises that 
that are, you know, benefiting humanity and brings light into the world. But, you know, that, that's, that's a paradigm shift, major paradigm shift outside yeah. of the gallery model. I've got to paint this to send to my gallery. If people are stuck in that cycle or that, that, that paradigm, break it. Yeah. You have to think beyond it. I think you, you're, to your point, you're seeing more of that since, especially since the pandemic of, I think actually probably since the last market crash, I've noticed that the artists have become much more supportive of each other. And with social media, of course, that times along with it, you know, being more supportive, creating more platforms to share each other's work, and then also doing kind of like show, like online shows or, you know, other ways for the work to get out there and to be sold and so I think you're seeing it. I think one thing that's advantageous for you is that, you know, you're being attuned and also working within digital media. It's a little bit more of a unresolved territory for that, that canon. So it can float in and out. It's almost funny sometimes to watch galleries try to understand how to deal with digital media and like in video work and animations and, you know, there's no set rules and, it just becomes kind of like blurry, you know, but in within that there is, there's roads that you can take that are outside those normal roads of that, you know, antiquated structure of how artwork is seen and sold, you know, it sounds like you're taking advantage of that, you know. Well, I think, uh, I, I think, um, not, I wouldn't say that it's taking advantage it's partly that, but it's more about like just envisioning and predicting human behavior uh, in 20 years. Um, you know, what, what is the world going to look like in 20 years? Well, there will be screens everywhere. And most likely we will be in a very sort of augmented reality um, cyborg uh, existence. And it sounds weird, but it's something that will be organic and it will be gradual, but it's definitely coming. No, we're cyborgs now. Everyone has their their yeah. phone is seventy five percent of their brain, pretty much, right? It's like, right. I, how many times a day do I say, like, well, thank God for my eye color. I wouldn't remember this meeting or whatever it is, or I'm just looking things up. I mean, we are basically cyborgs in that sense. Because if you look back to artists like Stellark, right? I remember when I first saw saw like stills of his stuff, and I was like, what the hell? Like, this is crazy, and. It, it was slightly off because the machine part of it seemed to be a little more, you know, robotic and clunky, of course. But it, the phone and the internet have integrated into our life in a similar way. It's like assimilated, you know, into our daily process and our way of thinking. So I think naturally, like you were saying, like, oh, well, in the future, there'll probably be screens everywhere. But, you know, it, it could just be that everything is within us, like the screen is in the lens of your eye or something. So it's not like a physical manifestation, but it's just integrated into the way we see. And then, of course, there'll be Neuralink, um, you know, actually upgrading our brain capacity with, with uh, implants. Right. right. Um, yeah. That's going to be a very interesting outcome. And I, I believe that, you know, um, a lot of artists should really, uh, really understand the importance of being an artist, um, of being a creator, of being unique right now. Um, yeah. Because uh, we're entering an age where everything is going to be uh, so hyper uh, efficient that the humanity can be lost. And um, the more that we create 
the more that we express our uniqueness, the more, because creating is the ultimate uh, form of self-expression and therefore rebellion, right? Yeah, Being definitely. yourself. And, and we need that. We need that, especially going into this future that is unknown, because that is what keeps us human. Yeah, it's going to be a real fight back too, because like I, to my point earlier, I think that there's an idealized view that these this ability to share and to have this online persona or to you know, be creative in these different outlets through technology, at the end of the day, those things are just turning into like business platforms for advertising yeah. and for information mining. So it's not really... For on the back end side of it, it's not about creativity necessarily. It's more about money. Do you think that um, uh, these uh, large companies are infallible, that they cannot be uh, altered in some way or, or, or another? I think they could probably bend a little bit, but I don't think they're going to go. Let's, let's take an industrial revolution example. So like the oil industry or, you know, the steel industry or some, yeah. something that's actually fabricated, they may cut back on emissions. They may make attempts to be a little more, you know, environmentally sound or sustainable, but it's not going to, you know, like we haven't seen, one of the things in this country is we haven't seen energy, like old energy flip to, you know, sustainable energy or renewable energy. Like you would Gradually, think that like gasoline companies could just, turn into solar companies and then they, but the infrastructure of the, you know, of a business and, and people who have dug their heels into a certain way of doing things for so long, it just takes forever for people to, to migrate or they will die off and then a new company will have to take over for that. You know what I mean? Here's my thing though. Like we, we look at a company like Facebook, for example. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have a very bad taste in their mouth when they think of it. Right. I think that a company in order to survive has to serve the people in a way and, and not, and not, you know, um, not have such a perverse, you know, effects on, you know, society, <laughs> because yeah. there's a lot of, there are a lot of screwed up things that are happening because of Facebook. Right. Um, not only in terms of mining our data and selling it to third parties without our permission, but, you know, the, the spread of all of this uh, hate uh, propaganda and all yeah. of this. You know, it's, it, here's the thing. It's, these, it's the Wild West. Legislation is very slow. Um, the government is a dinosaur. The legislative process is moves like a dinosaur up against tech companies that move at the light of speed and are always a gazillion steps ahead. So where, where is it that you're able to find, um, you know, this, uh, this balance of regulation where you have like um, the proper controls in place that protect people from the technology that's designed to um, uh, manipulate them and um, to gain as much as they can while they can, yeah. <laughs> while they can get away with it. Right. I think that, you know, I don't think a Facebook is an oil and gas. I think a Facebook is more like a, a Napster. I think all technology companies are like that. Oh, well, well, maybe not Google, obviously. Yeah. But a company, a social media company that relies on our participation for its survival, 
that relies on our ability or not ability, but our willingness to participate on its survival is always going to be walking on eggshells because there may be a day if there's a better technology, if there's a more um, ethical, more a, a technology that actually speaks to people on a, on a level of, you know, hey, you know, if I participate on this platform, you know, it's, it's probably going to make things a lot better for me and for everyone around me. Yeah. Then if, if that exists and that will come, it's just that it's an early stage of the technology and, and it's only been around for what, 10 years? Right. Something like that. That's a very short period of time. But, you know, I think that it's fluid and I think that there can be changes and there's a lot of technological changes that are happening. I mean, I'll give you an example. So something that I'm very, very um, uh, strongly advocating is uh, um, data autonomy, right? Yeah. And of course, since you've watched that, that film about uh, social media, um, you realize that data is power. And you don't hear it. You don't hear it up there. Um, it's not in the media. It's not spoken about. But data is power. Yeah. No one's talking about it. And I, I know why. Um, it's, not in, it's not in a lot of people's interests to have that sort of indoctrinated into people's minds. Because if people realize that if data is power, my data is being taken without my permission, my power is being taken away from me. That, that's a major, major violation of people's human rights. And you start getting into the realm of human rights law. So I believe that the next front line of human rights would be about data autonomy. And rightly yeah. so. Well, I think one of the difficulties with the that idea of data's power, the the conundrum is it's under the the guise of your voice is power, right? Or or there's something um, freeing and liberating about like being able to just get on your phone and say what you think about things. So under this guise of like getting on Facebook and saying, "Hey, I can just connect with all these people and share this link that I feel like is really powerful." Or, you know, talk about my experience, which is, you know, sort of like very meaningful to myself. At the same time, that's within a structure of a, a environment where data is being taken and used as power. So you're, you're under the impression that you're given more power by your voice connecting with people, but it's being mediated through a company that is using that data as power be another thing if like facebook was just rounding people up and stick them in rooms and saying you know scribble a note on the paper and we'll send it to a friend if we feel like it then you would feel much more urgency to break out of that relationship but since it's under this kind of you know guise of like oh you can say whatever you want you're free to you know you can connect with anyone your voice is just as powerful as anyone else's then it, it's kind of you know a flip in that sense so that's a very good point. So it's basically the platform um, that, you know, uh, and the system that is created um, in order to exchange, you know, our data, our, our data autonomy and our freedom to own our own data. Um, for example, our pictures that we post on Facebook, they own, they own everything that we post, right? Yeah. 
so as the middleman and that's a system that they've devised and that's a business that's a business model and that they have a right to do that and they're doing very well with that but um new technology is coming out and uh there is a, a tech company called Cinchi, c-i-n-c-h-y Cinchi.com. Mm -hmm. it's a canadian-based uh um startup and uh, I, I met these guys at the Collision Conference in 2018. I was held here in Toronto. And um, they're very exciting uh, data. Um, it's, a, it's, called, it's a data networking platform. So it's a data fabric. So it's a, our data right now is floating into a cloud because there's no fabric. There's no architecture in place for us to capture the data and then to control it. Right. And then control access to the data. Right. So they are actually, they've created this, this fabric platform where the data is downloaded into the, the fabric, captured by the fabric, and then uh, we, can, we can control the data. Each data cell is, is accessed, and uh, there are no data silos. A lot of companies have problems with accumulating huge data silos. We do too. We have huge data silos, yeah. dead data sitting in silos. Right. Um, their, their main business is selling their technology to finance companies because um, if if uh, if finance company were to sign up for Cinchi with a yearly subscription, um, all their data is laid out on this this uh, this fabric and they could pull the data like live like right away and visualize it and make sense of it and it, it really um, for them to create new. Um, systems or new um, functions, new software functions within their um, uh, their enterprise. If they wanted to do that, they could do that cost savings, millions of dollars and time. And um, the, the efficiency and, and the speed in which they can actually process data is like thousandth of a second smarter, faster. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I speak to the CEO, Dan Demers, I'm actually doing a collaboration with this company. Dan and I have been very close contact and speaking about, you know, um, you know the, the future vision of the company and, uh, and how art can help to um, communicate the, um, you know, the ethos and the, um, the importance of data autonomy, because it's all about education at this point, right? Yeah. And he said that right now they are targeting, of course, uh, Fortune 500 financial companies because they're a brand new startup and they have to create the business. But his vision is to actually have these platforms available for the individual users because individual users have the same data concerns as a company. Right. And uh, that would be a game changer because, for example, if, if uh, you, know, you and I wanted to um, share artworks you know, with one another. Um, I wanted to show you uh, one of my new pieces. I can actually say this piece, I will grant access to Brian under these terms, under these um, conditions, um, this time limit and everything. And then you would get direct access to that, that style of data right. instead of going through a middleman. So this would eliminate the middlemen altogether. They basically eliminate these middlemen apps that would uh, accumulate your data and yeah. um, create uh, endless um, duplicates. Right. Which, which also erodes the value of the data cell, erodes the data of, um, erodes the value of the art. Because if you could make duplicates of digital art, 
you know, it's completely devaluing it. Right. So all of these problems will be solved basically eventually. And there's new technology coming out. So things are changing. Things are always in flux. This is the age of disruption. It means that nothing is written in stone. There right. are no ivory towers. Um, there will always be something new coming up. It's a fascinating time. I love it. Yeah. I will uh, I'll one up you on being even more um, economical in the carbon footprint of data. I'll just take the one right behind you. <laughs> there. Yeah. You don't even have to send me the link. I'll take that one. <laughs> there will over. always there will always be that, right? In our right. there will yeah. always be that visceral, you know, connection to a piece that you love and you want to live with. Yeah. And for that's sure. that's something that that's human, right? Yeah. And we haven't changed since the for thousands of years that we've existed. We haven't changed physiologically. Yeah. But the technology is like it's crazy now. Right. It's really, yeah. really we, we just we had to change outside of us. You know what I mean? That's why like for me, my work is all about kind of like the world outside and what that says about us as people, because I feel like it's so informing of who we are as a people in society just by looking at our surroundings and our world you know but your work your work is kind of to me from the outsider's perspective of not making the work it just is taking it seems like it's taking the medium of something that is so fast and so um that just keeps moving and is about the speed of change and it seems to really slow it down and make it more meditative and peaceful and aesthetic and it's kind of subverting the the intent of the media to to switch it you know is that correct you're absolutely right thank you for that um that is my intention and because i am a meditator and um uh, actually my my creative breakthrough came from meditation and i used to paint i used to paint uh, um abstract works like one of my pieces here I'll show you Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a poem that I wrote. I am but a teardrop in the ocean, and I sense a wave of my thoughts that travels beyond space and time, an illusion of separation. We are part of the same flow. Only love is a truth that energizes the cosmos, but you already know this. Just remember. So that's, that's one of my paintings that I, I, I entered this, um, this you know, um, uh, Masters of Fine Art program at La Salle College of the Arts in Singapore. It's mm -hmm. tied in with King's College, and uh, you know, I I was a I was a painter, and then yeah. I started meditating, and I was going through crazy uh, divorce and depressed and anxious. Like I, my life was just like falling apart. But you know, it's amazing how I started taking transcendental meditation, and that sort of like just brought me back to center. I found myself. I found my voice and I followed my intuition. My intuition told me to go digital. And through that meditative practice of finding myself and creating art that actually healed me, like I felt like, wow, when I looked at a piece on a screen, like, damn, like that just really makes me feel good. Yeah. And I just feel really, really like, I just feel like I have to create more of these because, you know, I guess if I feel good looking at it, it must feel, make, feel, make others feel good. So I continued with that, and my my supervisors thought I was nuts. 
I was the crazy one because you don't, you don't, you didn't hear a lot about meditation, um, you know, back then, like in my cohort, and that was 2013, yeah. 2012, 2013. Like they would tease me, they would tease me, and I, you know, I think oh, it's really cute, it's really sweet. They're a great <laughs> group of friends, artists. But I was really weird. Like I was the one that was like, okay, we need to meditate and we need to focus on making, um, uh, you know, creating a better world. The digital's taking over. And I believe that um, the brain and the synapses of the brain, the, the functioning of the brain, um, the brain is being altered in such a crazy way that we need an antidote and that antidote to the mega distraction that I'm feeling, like I have ADD, but it's, of course, it can be exacerbated. And with the kids now, you see the next generation, yeah. poor things. I mean, you know, they can't sit still. They need a screen to distract them at all times in order to feel okay. Feeling bored, or like sitting in empty space. I mean, like an empty moment with no distraction. Silence is actually uh, disturbing to a lot of kids. Oh, yeah. My kids would be like, I'm bored, I'm bored. I'm like, oh, geez. I mean, like, so what? Like, I used to be bored all the time. <laughs> Daydream. That's what it's all about, right? Right? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's, I've I've said it a million times on the podcast. Is like, boredom is, is such a sort of generator for creativity but and and you know in having a kid who's a teenager and thinking about how i was back then i my default is to be like oh well i didn't have all this stuff to keep me busy so i became creative because of that and for and then i i in thinking about it over and over again like i don't want to be the old guy who's like well when i was a kid it was great you know i want i want him like i understand that for kids nowadays they're just different like it's the yeah, way they different. function in the creative realm and with information is different than us you know it's like they need computer skills yeah i mean it what's well, just it's it's kind of like an evolved method of communication you know it's like my grandparents saying i should have learned to use the abacus to do math because it's the right <laughs> way you know and it's like yeah but i kind of grew up with a, even i grew up with a calculator and in you know calculus or whatever so it you know it's just we evolve in the way that we we do things and, and kids yeah. they're just going to have a different attention span and they're going to have a different you know i, I they're probably going to take boredom out of the webster's dictionary well i i honestly think that I think that because there's growing science into understanding the benefits of meditation, and especially since COVID, more, more people are meditating than ever. Yeah. I, I believe that, you know, all kids, I believe that all kids should be meditating. And that it should be like in schools, that kids, they should just be taught how to, um, to meditate because, and the reason why is because that is going to save, um, uh, the creative, the creative muscle of the next generation, and that creative muscle is the muscle of free free will, free speech, democracy, free thinking. There are a lot of uh, important skills and important values that are sort of like imparted through the act of creation. I totally agree with that, and I think to bookmark that point. I think that 
um, distraction is a big tool against that. I think that, that when you're distracted by a million things, you can't pay attention to that other stuff that's filtering through, or you know what I mean? Like, or you're just constantly thinking about the next thing and you're not actually able to slow down and think about things in a more holistically sort of circular way. But I don't know. I guess I'm trying to understand that as someone right now in my age who's lived through technology the way I have. I don't know if you can force that or or try to ingrain that kind of thinking onto younger people who haven't evolved, their brain hasn't evolved in that platform. Do you know what I mean? And then I do... Often, what you mean a med- med- meditation? Yeah, and well, slowing down and thinking about things in that oh. kind of way. You know what I mean? In relation to creativity. Like if I watch my son do editing, like he does edits videos and he does music editing and stuff and he's so fast at it and he really um, thrives in that kind of digital environment of like cutting uh. and pasting and collaging and moving things around. It's just, yeah, yeah. it's his canvas, you know? Yeah. And who am I to say, like, well, you got to learn how to paint, boy, before you, you know. No, you can't say that. No, no, that's that's great. That's amazing that he's expressing himself that way. Right, but there's a speed to that native environment that becomes intuitive, I think, to them. In a way, like, I think I'm that way, too. Like, I get so busy. Like, I know I should meditate. I know I should do yoga. It's going to be good for me, you know. (laughs) I will do like, you know, 30 push-ups in like, you know, 30 seconds or something to try to make Mm -hmm. up for what I'm not doing in like a slow process of, you know what I mean? I was lucky enough to meditate in Kyoto in like a Buddhist temple. Oh, I love Kyoto. It was one of the most amazing experiences. I can't do that every day. (laughs) Okay, but let me ask you. Well, okay, here's the thing. So Kyoto, you you go to Kyoto, you step, you see, you you touch down in Kyoto, and immediately you are Zen, right? Yeah, it Do you not that. feel that vacuum of like energy, like Zen? Definitely. Right? Okay, so so Kyoto was built by by the samurai during peacetime. And the art of war was then translated into the art of life. And so they, they painted, they created incredible architecture. Um, you know, they created gardens, they created uh, their entire, that city is a work of art. And uh, that city with the power of the intention is to create this beauty of Zen. And they successfully did that. And that is what inspired me as an artist to do what I do, because our environment is a mirror of the mind. So I don't think it's impossible to create um, that kind of a powerful environment digitally for people, to be inspired to sit and to meditate. Like you said, you were in that Buddhist temple and you were inspired to meditate, even though you're not a daily meditator. Well, that's what art does imparts that inspiration yeah i will say it was also uh i was inspired by the sound of them cracking other people in the back who weren't meditating (laughs) (laughs) there's also that that's so funny that was very inspiring (laughs) that is so yeah (laughs) did you get did you get uh hit (laughs) no i didn't i must have done well Well, i I didn't get i didn't get a crack on the back (laughs) i really worked hard at it 
I remember when I would meditate as a young, young girl taking martial arts classes, my dad and his students, he would have a stick, uh, you know, a short stick. Yeah. And he would just tap it on your forehead when you're not paying attention or if you're, med- if you're like slouching in meditation, you're, you're like, you're goofing off, you just go on your head. And it was called the Chongxing Byong. It's Chongxing um, Byong, which means the uh, attention stick. <laughs> like the like get back into attention right yeah and it works <laughs> right Asian. yeah yeah it worked as a kid you know it worked um that's very interesting yeah kind those, of centers those you old school yeah those old school tactics you get sued now if you try to use that i know it's so sad it's you funny. can't use those you can't use those anymore child protective services or whatever your coaching license or whatever will be taken away from you you know if you do that stuff yeah, it's really interesting how the world has changed so much since my childhood to now and, and our childhood. Well, it's that, it's that arc, right? That speed of change is so fast now. It's only going to get more and more exponentially uh, disruptive. I think what and we're I, seeing too... Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that our, our children have to be uh, sort of like uh, conditioned to be so fluid yeah. um, and to adapt. Definitely. I, th- I think what we're seeing like in society and politically, at least in our country, is that kind of tension between change and diversity and, you know, evolution of multiple angles of thought and then a sort of myopic way of thinking and a stubbornness. And like, as the speed of that stuff changes, it's like a, rubber band pulling on each end you know and that's why like i think there's a lot of fear that there's a little bit of a snap coming (laughs) there is i think that with every change there's always going to be pain Uh, there's always going to be that that um that transitional point where people don't want change people who are first to change people are afraid and it's always that fear that you know that uh, aggravates the division and everything and i some some political actors, you know, they they want to, but they want to actually, uh, you know, take advantage of that, and that's that's really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but I think that I think that with our children's generation and the next subsequent generations, I think that I mean, it's, it's going to be a whole new world. Uh, I hope so. I mean, it's it, incremental. It's you know. <laughs> It's uh, two really? steps forward and one step back. <laughs> you think so? I think yeah. that the next, I think within the, within 30 years, I think our world is going to be so, the values are going to be so different. The fluidity is the future. So my, I have this theory that the gradient, the gradient represents the digital human because it really is a departure from the binary way of thinking, um, the archaic divisions that we used to uphold of race and religion and all of these things. I think, yeah, these are still, um, you know, legacies today, but I believe that in the future, future, I think that everything will be fluid. I think that Gene Roddenberry, I think is a freaking genius. And yeah. if, you, if, you, if, you, if anyone knows Star Trek, the classic Star Trek series, even the next generation, I think that that's really a true reflection of what the future will probably look like, which is probably a good thing. I admit to not being a Trekkie, and I've never watched an episode in my life. I apologize. That's okay. That's okay. I mean, he's, 
uh, he's predicted a lot of technological advancements, like yeah. smartphone, like all of that, and you know, even um, medical uh, medical advancements, what it will look like, you know, gene altering therapies, and all this stuff is really crazy when you think about how uh, life can imitate art. Yeah, there's some some amazing predictive. Um, capabilities of some people to see the future in that way you know so can i ask you one thing about your native town toronto i mean i went i think a year ago i drove up there with my family and, and just loved the city oh wonderful yeah and have some what friends there who are it? artists it's just well the vibe of it is cool it the there was great food yes of course there, there was um there was great art and it was diverse in a really great way like the i don't know it just had a really great feel to it it's chill and, yeah and i hadn't spent a ton of time there in the past but um I, I it was definitely a place and like you know we went to like a, a boba tea place and, and we got to talking mm -hmm. to the guy who was running it and he was like yeah yeah i lived in brooklyn we moved here from like last year so there's awesome. like a, a good community of, of people seemingly and it just had a good vibe but you've been, I mean, it's, you came back to it, so you must like it. You know what? I have to say that um, I, I, you, we have a tendency, it's a human tendency to take things for granted. No, really? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> so growing up in Toronto and, and the cold winters and, you know, I just, I wanted to be in Europe. I wanted to be in Asia. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted more experiences and, and you know, having lived in Asia and then come back, there's a lot that I have to say is incredible about being in Canada and being mm -hmm. in Toronto. Um, I love the U.S. too, of course. I love New York. I, I, I'm always there. And, um, you know, and the thing is, um, especially going through COVID and going through this, uh, this crisis and how um, Canadians have handled it, you know, there's something about Canada where there's humanity in the culture. Yeah. And it could be because it's like um, a cold place, small country. Um, people actually care about one another. That's, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that concept. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah, it's, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like you know, right. It's like, it's, it's why would it, why should it be so foreign? Like, it's like, you know, there is that consideration of the other in the culture. And, you know, that's, you, you've got universal health care here and, and, you know, during, during the lockdown, people were, people who, who lost their work or were given a, a step in by the government. Um, and there's no panic. There's no like major racial tensions. I have friends from all over, you know, and, and the government really sort of like is very conscious and very socially conscious in that yeah. sense. Um, that's written into the law and it's, 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 uh, it's in the education system and academia. So, yeah, I mean, being here is great. It's not perfect. There are a lot of flaws everywhere, everywhere else does. But here's one thing though, like if, if we're living in Asia, like quite frankly, if you were to, especially with the whole racism issue, right? Um, it's racist in Asia. Yeah. Right. I mean, quite frankly, if if uh, you are Korean in Japan, like 
even as an Asian in Japan, you are, you are, uh, you can uh, be stigmatized. You, if not so, if more than were, when I go. Well, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, you have to really look at things for what they are. And it's like we, we in, the, in, in North America, it's a, it's a work in progress. It's probably the greatest social experience experiment ever on a global scale of how people around the world can live together peacefully. And it's a work in progress. But you know what? It's a hell of a lot better than the rest of the world. Right. We're at the leading edge and it's not perfect. And, you know, I feel terrible for the whole George Floyd thing and all the, you know, Breonna Taylor and all these things. It breaks my heart. But I mean, it's like, it is a work in progress and progress will be made. And I believe in, I believe in that, uh, the legal system and how people's individual rights, no matter the race or the creator religion or the background is recognized. We all have our individual rights and that's written into the law. Well, it's not written into law in China. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's a work in progress. And, um, you know, especially being Canadian and under, like when you, when you're Canadian and you're in Canada and you speak to other Canadians, we don't know what Canadian values are because you're living in it. You're living in the fishbowl. Okay. But when you step outside, you're like, yeah, you know, Canadian values, like there is such a thing. And you know what that thing is? I figured it out. What is it? You be you. That's pretty good. I, I think and that's, that's kind Canadian. Of, I think it's kind of American. It's like you be you, but don't let me know about it. I don't want to hear about. It. Do you be you like in your own room? But like when you come out, you know, you be the way we want you to be. That's our problem. <laughs> and I used to think, yeah. you know, the difference between Canada and the U.S. I think I always had this feeling of like, oh well, you know, the U.S. the tensions that are here are the way they are because you have this experiment of all these people coming from all over the world and thrown together, especially in cities where actually, and then, you know, there, there's tension there or like it's, it's problematic because we're kind of built on this idea that everyone can just step on other people. Like you can be successful if you try really hard, but you got to step on other people to get up there basically, or you can just everyone for themselves. So like when I visit Japan and like everyone cares more about the community and like there's no garbage and people are very polite and it's just like, oh, this is how society should work. But then again, that's easier when everyone's been secluded together on an island for thousands and thousands, you know. So our experiment is, so I used to think that's the dynamic between the two. It's like with the U.S., it's like you have diversity, but then you have tension because of that. And people like to do things a different way. And you can't pay attention to the way all these different cultures of people do their thing because you'd never do anything. So there's tension with that. But Canada kind of does the same thing and they do it a lot better. (laughs) There's a lot less tension. And I think that's that tension is mitigated by the government's ability to generally care for the people over themselves, the politicians and the government. So like universal healthcare, like that is like a loaded weapon word in this country for oh, yeah. some unknown reason. <gasps> the idea that healthcare for everyone is offensive or socialist, yet we have the post office that's run by the government and everyone sends stuff through the post. You know what I mean? It's, it's this bizarre thing to me, but 
Canada kind of proves it wrong. It's it's like you can have people from all over the world in a place and you can yeah. get along and it doesn't have to turn into, you know, all this tension and guns and everything else. Boy, this yeah. went sideways. This so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> take it so far it's away the from the world we live in. That, yeah, yeah. It's true. You know, it, it's totally the world we live in. And I yeah. think that, you know, yeah, for sure. Being uh, Korean Canadian, second generation, and being that person, and then going out into the world and, you know, uh, you know, living and, and, and absorbing, and that definitely informs my work. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we are what we create, right? Definitely. As artists. And, you know, I, I feel extremely grateful for being in Toronto with my children and co-parenting here. I feel so grateful for that. I really do. And I'm not saying that it's better than anywhere else, but I have to say that I, I feel, uh, like this country going forward, um, for the next hundred years, will be in a you know we'll, it, it won't be easy because this this pandemic obviously caused a lot of you know economic damage. Yeah. But I think that we are in a good position because um, you know the good education, and it's not astronomically expensive like it is in the U.S. Like people right. have a right to education, people have a right to healthcare, and I if Americans just had the healthcare down. It would transform the country. It would transform the country. People would be less stressed, less in survival mode, um, and more focused on building, yeah. trading, right? Yeah, it's so frustrating. I'm sorry, my pharmaceutical sponsor just told me you're not allowed to say what you just said on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you just scared me there. I'm like, what? <laughs> that is hysterical. I'm like, what pharmaceutical company? Seriously. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, it's so frustrating. You know? It's so frustrating. It's you would think that you could just we could change. Well, that change hopefully is going to go. I don't know. Canada might change though. On November third, there might be an influx of people coming up to to move in after. <laughs> I really, yeah. I we'll see. That's really. I'm really praying that everything will be good. Like I'm really hoping sending good vibes your way, guys. I it's, really, really. It's sad that it's want... come to this point. <laughs> It's a growing, it's a growing, it's a, it's growing pains. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that your kids and their kids, um, I hope they're not going to be, I don't think they're going to face the same issues. I really, really don't. I think well, that generation is so different. Yeah. Well, I mean, the only thing do they care? Is, yeah, no, they totally, yeah. And, but the only thing is like things change, but then like, stuff always seems to come back up like it's cyclical you know it's like the whole history repeating itself thing it's like things change but then and think some things get better but then other things kind of creep in and i don't know i'm an optimist though so i'm right there with you i'm thinking well, yeah we have to be optimists we have yeah. to be optimistic i no, think so. I, it's yeah you know shifts of power are never pretty no not at all. Shifts of power are never pretty, and um, you feel it. You feel it in the air, and yeah. you know. Like just wait until all the all the truck drivers lose their jobs, and all the retail sector, all the all the all the checkout counter people lose their jobs, and all everyone, in, you know, in retail. Like so many people in retail. Like I mean, it's 
mass unemployment. It's, it's not a joke, right? What's going to yeah. happen? And I think um, universal basic income in this transitional point would make the most sense. Yeah, I mean, that's um, why I was I was with the Yang gang. I thought that made oh, sense. Oh, yeah, me too. God damn it. That's awesome, yeah. <laughs> I was like, Andrew Yang, I read his book. Yeah. And he really... Smart guy. He was the best candidate for the job, you know? In the words of my wife, after that, America's just never going to have an Asian president. And she says that as an Asian woman. <laughs> yes, okay. And I was like, no, well, they true. can't. I was like, we had Barack Obama. She's like, nope, never going to happen. <laughs> never going to happen? <laughs> like, <laughs> Fujimoto, he was the president of Peru. I think that was the only... I wonder if there are other... That's the only one I know. Of yeah, and look how that shaked out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not so good. Yeah. <laughs> let's hope that was an anomaly um well let's talk about your art too uh, you know I, like yeah the one thing i was going to ask earlier and we got we went in a different direction but i wanted to get to that transition from like oil painting to the digital media it's such a material shift there's such a yeah it's a different <laughs> like you you're not going to your local art store and picking up some brushes and canvas so how did you navigate that shift to technology oh my god it was a lot of playing around yeah. Yep. Isn't a lot it of hard experimentation. Isn't it hard with that material? So here's the thing. So I, I'm a real, I love James Turow. You know, I love light art. I love Dan Flavin. Um, I, I was really sort of like, okay, so maybe there's a way for me to present um, light art through digital medium. I, in the really beginning stage, I had nowhere. The only thing I had was light. Yeah in my mind, um, because it, for me, it was like, um, you know, through my meditation, I thought, well, light is the new ink. And I started like rereading my, uh, the books of Marshall McLuhan, you know, mm -hmm. the medium is the message. Yeah. And, you know, it, he's a freaking prophet. I mean, this man is a genius. Um, his teachings are more relevant today than ever. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the medium is the message that um that digital is transforming uh us as a human race in our society just through the adaptation of the of the medium by which we we communicate um so that for me was fascinating and i, I saw that light at the new ink and i thought you know i'm a real fan of rothko too and i thought you know i really i really want to create sublime art no, I want to create art that transports people, you know, and, and heals people. And I, I want to create the sublime. So my thesis became light and the sublime in school while I was investigating everything. And I thought, okay, let's start with light. So in Singapore, um, in my, uh, in the landscaping and, you know, Singapore is a new city that uh, used to be a backwater just like 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. It just, grew out of nowhere. It's really Exploded. a yeah. It's a wonderful city. And so all the buildings are like really cutting edge architecture. With a lot of LED lights, right? yeah. expressing that future forward thinking, tech savvy, uh, you know, culture. Right? Yeah. And so I went outside at night I saw these beautiful lights and I thought, you know, I'm just going to take pictures of all of these LED lights. 
play around with it. Yeah. So I started taking images of my Nikon and I came back with some really, really great images. I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to use this and I'm going to play on Adobe. I'm going to paint on it. I'm going to like do all kinds of crazy stuff to it and all these different, you know, software and I'm just going to play. And it was all about experimentation and, you know, by mistake, I came up with my Genesis piece which is actually showing it in New York at the Waterfall Mansion Gallery right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, my collector owns it, my, my, my good friend Trevor. Um, so it's, it's a, it, it, yeah, like it's a beautiful, beautiful black and blue piece. And, you know, I was like, wow, like you can, can really create some interesting compositions. And it's just that, you know, like if you if you look at any sort of like uh, thing, any 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 visual um, piece of work digitally, it's basically algorithms. It's all it's all like it's all code, right? Right. So I'm fascinated by how the code can translate that sort of like um, the vibrancy and the illumination of light, the behavior of light, the mm-hmm. code. Yeah. And then and then that's retranslated again when you actually like render it through a printer and you're creating like you know printed formats or like video formats and so you know it all just started to come together um you know as i was writing my thesis about you know can it be done can you can you create this you know visceral piece of work that's digital because a lot of the the visuals that I saw were screensavers. Right. And a lot of the critiques actually that I received in school was that my art was just, oh, it's just Photoshop. Or, oh, it's just, you know, it's, uh, it's too facile. It's just, you know, it's like a screensaver. Like, wow, you know, like there's this already um, huge prejudice against the, the new medium in my school. My school is full of painters and performance artists, sculptors, very classically trained yeah. artists. So I, you know, I was always sort of like fighting for my voice, like even in school, it was really funny. And, but in the end, this Genesis piece became a real, um, you know, sort of like well-received piece. And it was chosen um, as a, when, for the showcase of the graduating year in 2013 at the mm-hmm. school. Um, but that came after a lot of like defending my work and just, you know, um, formulating those ideas that digital doesn't have to be a distraction. It doesn't have to be just like uh, graphic art, you know, just graphics and moving and like distraction. It doesn't have to be just that. Yeah. It could be something meaningful and um, a real expression of our time in a meaningful way as a human being. And so I've just continued since then on the same uh, exploration. And it's, you know, I was uh, doing a lot of the, these works. Of course, uh, this piece was created in 2000. The piece behind me was 2016. Mm-hmm. Was, sorry, 2017, sorry. And this piece was, um, oh, this piece is one of the pieces that was chosen by uh, Lanvin 
when I right. did the collaboration with the fashion brand. Yeah. And so I've kept this piece for myself and my kids. Nice. <laughs> yes, thank you. And um, so I guess I'm not going to get that trade. <laughs> <laughs> this piece is, yeah, this is a family piece. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, I going into the video, especially during quarantine, you know, I mm-hmm. thought, well, you know, um, since we're not able to do any shows, I, I really want to express some meditativeness and healing and relief for people. So I created a, you know, the Mayo uh, channel and I, I just sort of like just posted videos every week and updated it and just got really into the video thing, really, yeah. really into the video, collaborating with Legovskoy. They, so sad. Legovskoy is a wonderful electronic band. Like they're amazing. They do like, they used to do like uh, sound, sound baths in Paris and Brussels, based in Paris. But Nicola and Raphael, they broke up uh, uh, as a as an artistic uh, collaboration. Unfortunately, it's one of the so they're no longer victims of COVID. Yeah, unfortunately, I just I just but but they're great, amazing, talented duo, and it's hard. Yeah, it's it's hard to create. It's hard to survive. And Definitely. that puts a strain on everybody, right? Everyone's in the same boat and it's hard. It's not, it's not easy to continue creating and finding a reason to, and you know, um, you're not, you know, maybe you're not selling, you're not, you know, you just see darkness and a long tunnel ahead. Right. Yeah. No, it's definitely a, a test. You know, um, when things like this happen, I think, it's so hard forever. You know, it's just, it really tests the creative spirit. There's always going to be people who work through it and soldier through. And I think for a lot of people, you know, it, who may not have been a hundred percent dedicated, it's going to test their, their will, you know, it's not, um, it's not easy. I'm really, I'm really interested in that idea. I think it responds so well to the idea of the sublime, which is something that I've, you know, thought of and read about and you know it's just a topic that i really love ever since like reading you know dave hickey back in the day um and i think that you know the idea of the sublime being transmuted from you know the environment to the digital environment where we feel like oh well now we can see the world we we can go everywhere now the sublime is kind of information and technology because you can't necessarily see how it's going to shape up but the idea of creating a sublime experience that's related to that, the awe of nature and, you know, or something like Rothko of like the, the saturation of color or, you know, and, and putting that into that new environment is really interesting kind of dialogue between the two, you know, the analog and the digital or, you know, nature and technology. And the, 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 expand, the, the expanded color gamut and, yeah. and the infusion of light into that experience, it, it's been a really interesting uh, journey for me. I mean, I, I never expected to be a digital artist. I never <laughs> expected like, it. Here I am. Famous words. I'm not even like crazy tech savvy either, but I'm not. Well, I'm not uh, technically a great painter either. And somehow I do that for a living. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's, it's all about having uh, philosophy in the eye, and, you know, your strong ethos, right? Like you have yeah. to have, 
Well, it's kind of like, you know, punk rock guitarist. They're not playing, you know, Chopin on that guitar. They're just belting out some power chords, but there's something to it, you know? So, uh, you know, you don't have to necessarily be so immersed in, in the methods that it's, you know, complete fluidity. There's something to be said for, you know, I, I, I taught myself animation, you know, I never, when I was in school, they weren't teaching that. So I've kind of taught myself the way I use it. I'm no expert in the programs necessarily, but I'm an expert at doing it the way I want to do it to get what I want done, you know. And I think sometimes that can be, it can almost be liberating being unencumbered by knowledge of all the different ways that you can use a specific media, you know. Had I been trained, because I wasn't trained in, you know, as a graphic artist, had I been trained, I don't think that I would have been able to come and discover what I've discovered visually. Yeah. Is, you know, I, I think it would have been completely different. Yeah. My approach is very much as, a, as an expressionist. Right. I mean, some of the best filmmakers never studied cinematography or film necessarily. They're just storytellers and they, they have a vision of the way they want to see things, you know? So what about the future of teaching art? Oh my God. Are you, are you, do you have a couple more hours for this book? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. The future I know. of teaching art. Yeah. It's such a big question. And, you know, you know, as a teacher who's, you know, teaching online, it's, it's a whole new world in a way, you know, but I think that, um, I don't know. So much of teaching art, I think, is about ideas and it's about pushing people. And it's not like I don't think once in my I mean, I've done de I do demos and painting classes. If I ever teach like an intro painting class. But I mean, you know, you're not really holding someone's hand and like, you know, like we're the it's like the tutorial generation. Anyways, like I could spend a whole class showing someone how to mix paint and they'll go home on YouTube and then look it up in a video and that's what they'll use. You know, you know what I think? I think it's also it's also that which is like learning the nuts and bolts and, and this, the technique which yeah. is very important. But I think that also delving into the human being and discovering who they are is also equally as important. And I found for me like that was an incredible part, if not more important than um, than anything, is just to just to find your own voice and to have courage, right? you know, to have courage to um, express that voice without fear of being judged. Definitely. And that's always the greatest challenge. I think what separates someone who's a hobbyist versus a professional artist is not only that you're selling work, but also that, well, even that can be questioned. Yeah. Is it is it whether you are fearless and you're truly expressing yourself? You know, like are yeah. you are you actually doing that? Are you expressing yourself and you're fearless about it? And I think artists have to be fearless. And it's not easy. It's not easy, especially and that's something these that, days. You know? And that's something you can teach your students. Yes. How build build those. Build those character building, confidence building skills and finding out who they are. And I think, I think that actually spills into every profession, quite frankly, all totally. kids. Yeah. But artists are so vulnerable and so sensitive and so, so open that it very vulnerable and can easily be discouraged if, if you're being taught by the wrong people. Like, I'll give you an example. Okay. So 
I had this real like um, I had this real like personality clash with one of my supervisors who I dumped right away. And this supervisor um, actually was in the media arts department. Mm-hmm. They they switched me three times. The first guy was a painter. He didn't know what to do with me because I switched to digital. So I I, I got um, uh, set up with this second guy, and I told him about my about you know who influenced me. And I, I we had this conversation we're having right now, and I talked about Rothko and like to create the sublime. And he literally told me, "How dare you!" even compare yourself to Rothko. How dare you even mention his name? He's a master. He's way, way out of your, like, you can't even like compare yourself. Who do you think you are? And I, I was like, I thought we we're just having a conversation. Wait, right? this is the teacher? Yeah, yeah my to supervisor. To make them swear to God. inspired to make artwork? He mm. was, he was such an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, man, this is not about me now. This is about you. And you are unhappy, dude. And you're not, <laughs> you, you should not be, a, you should not be what, a teacher at all. Like, no, not at all. What, are I, you not allowed to be influenced by anyone who's in the art history canon because they're too amazing to even look at or talk about or re- relate yeah, right? your work to? That's odd. That's so weird. It's the weirdest conversation. And like, it was crazy because he, he said this out loud in front of my entire cohort because we were just like, you know, we all shared a studio, right? So I don't know, he tried to knock down my confidence and I looked him square in the eye and I said, I'm not comparing myself to Rothko. He is one of my inspirations and you have a problem. You've got issues, right? And I went straight to the principal and I'm like, dude, you gotta, gotta change my supervisor. I hate this guy. Like he's just yeah. weird. So it turned That's out great. okay. I got, yeah. yeah. But You had to do that, but, but it's intimidating. But a, lot of, a lot of students in art schools are subjected to that. Yeah. That's a drag. Yeah, I guess you could say in a way, I mean, I had some great teachers and I had some teachers in retrospect that are like they shouldn't have been teaching. They were collecting a paycheck. So the, I guess what you could say is maybe if you're going to dedicate your life to doing something as volatile and unsecure and, um, you know, and sort of ephemeral as making art, then it's good to be able to withstand that kind of challenge. You know what I mean? Like you to be able to stand up to that and to, to really own your voice. You know, I know it's hard at that, but that's an early age to be able to like stand up to that. But to go through that, I guess, could make you stronger. Not that you should have to go through that, but it can sort of solidify your, your metal, you know? Well, re- rejection is certainly um, part of the game. Certainly is uh, part and parcel of being an artist. You can't make everyone happy. Not everyone's going to like what you do. And that totally. should be okay. And that's okay. Oh, I, I, lo- I love that Warhol letter that he kept, the MoMA rejection letter, where they were oh, like, thank you did? so much for offering this. But, uh, you know, they were like, we, we don't have space for this work at this time. It was like a rejection letter to him. And, like, he kept that. And, you that's know, right. so if it happens to Warhol, it can happen to anyone, you know. And that didn't stop him. 
And I, I wonder about like the future of these institutions. I really do like, you know, how, how museums are going to function. Yeah, it's know, a big all, question. All the changes. Um, what role do they play? Yeah, are they connected? Do they still have a connection to the society? Right. Establish them. Yeah. Is there a or, connection at all? Or is it just relics, you know? Or yeah. showcases of like, you know, uh, famous collector's pieces. Right. I don't Nothing know. I'm wrong gonna, with that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm. I'm gonna plead that whole argue the faux argument I gave at the beginning, which is like I, I've got too much to. <laughs> I can't take on that, that mental like, you know, figuring that out. You know, it's so. It'll all work out on its own. But it's you know that question that's really coming to question now. Like you know, I I wonder if people um, in twenty years are still going to be you know interested in in. Uh, you know, in, this, in the same thing, I wonder, and I, I, I hope they are, yeah. I really do. But things are changing so much. I, um, I think interactivity and immersive experiences, the experiential is going to be pretty much um, going forward what people will be looking for. Yeah, I think one uh, possible uh, bellwether of that kind of idea is, remember, I remember when I was in school, you know, the New York Times review was such a huge thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't even know if students or if younger artists even, like, it's the Instagram, like, tag or whatever that matters. Yeah. You know, like, it's, so that shift happened. Like, back, if you would have told me when I was in grad school, like, yeah, stick around, like, in 20 years, Times reviews aren't going to mean what they do now. I'd be like, you're crazy, you know, and of course, it, things change, so. Museums, I'm sure their role is going to change within society and within contemporary art, for sure. It has to. Everything yeah. has to change. Everything's changing. And we have to get used to it and embrace so. it. Not good for yeah. an old guy like me. I'm, I'm, oh, come on. <laughs> You're not old. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not young. <laughs> I, it's I look all in at, the mind. <laughs> that, no, yeah, I feel like I'm 80, so that's not a good thing. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But I feel like the 40 mark, once you hit 40, it's like it's starting, everything's starting. Again. I, I make my relationship to age to like my my body clock bedtime. Like the earlier that bedtime gets, the older I feel in life. <laughs> oh my God, you are so funny. You are so funny. You gotta embrace um, it, you know? You can't be young yeah. forever. I'm young and conceptually but just not, not my bedtime. <laughs> it's have that good. effect we on all you, need right? sleep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, so yeah. what are you working on now? What's your current projects? Do you have anything coming up? And yeah. Yeah, I do, I do. Um, so I'm actually flying to Venice next week. Whoa, are you going to wear a full, um, are you going to go in a full uh, plastic <laughs> circle? <laughs> Um, I'll be masked and I'll be sanitized with a gel. You, are you nervous like, about it or are you, you good with it? No, not yeah. nervous. Not nervous. Um, I'm quite healthy, so I, I, don't, I know that I very low chance of anything bad happening to me. Yeah. Um, I do have to go and uh, do a site survey for location to do a show next year. Nice. Um, during the BNLA. And... Um, so I'll do that. And I'm also working on 
Ooh, an installation in Toronto for next year. Um, nice. Working on that, and um, I, I'm still active uh, with my gallery in New York, the Waterfall Mansion. Our show mm -hmm. is still continuing there. Um, my sound and light installation, it's a meditative installation. And um, I'm working on this uh, collaboration with uh, Sinchi, the company that I had mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, we are working on um, creating a, a VR art installation. And nice. um, things are, you know, really sort of like in flux. I, you know how it is, right? You make a plan and then COVID fucks it up, right? Are you yeah. allowed to swear in here? <laughs> yeah. It's you all definitely. about that. <laughs> right. No, yeah, so, the future the future plans have become, you know, not locked down for anyone for anything. So So I'm basically just um, you know, um timelines I'm not really focused on. I'm just going with the flow. Yeah. And, um, but I'm also working on a new project involving art for healthcare spaces. Nice. And I've been working on this project now for over a year, developing um, my artwork uh, printed onto an antibacterial poly canvas that's mm -hmm. made in Germany. And, uh, you know, creating like a, a wrapping hospital rooms and operating rooms, operating theaters and all that with my art. Wow, that's so interesting. Creating, yeah, I call it healing atmosphere. Nice. So our first installation is, a, is a being done at my friend, uh, Dr. Dilip Bednani's plastic surgery clinic in, uh, in New York. And that will mm -hmm. launch um, in Central Park East sometime late November, December. Mm-hmm. So that'll be the first project, and um, I plan on doing many more. And uh, so that's something that I'm very interested in, how to create uh, you know, a beautiful atmosphere in, in really depressing ho hospital rooms right. yeah. <laughs> for patients and staff, because Cheering them up they need bit. it. Yeah, for sure. That sounds it's great. It's pretty dire. Their, their physical environment yeah. is like... A, Helpful. I mean, it really needs help. It's so. depressing to say the least. Often, <laughs> right? Yeah. Something has to be done, and I'm, I, yeah. So, I'm going to start that project um, in the midst of that. That's my new business, actually. Nice. So, yeah. So that's that would be interesting. It would. And then, can you do me a favor? When you finish that project, can you develop yeah. a skin that you could just put on a like a bodysuit, so we could just have that antibacterial thing? Like, so there, there. So there art are. Skin. Oh, really? Yeah. There. Yeah. You. You can totally. Of course, you can. You can create bodysuits with the art without a question. But there is actually um, a nanotech spray out of Germany that. Um, that is antibacterial, antimicrobial, like really? antivirus, anti-COVID. Yeah. It lasts for one year. It's a, it's a nano coating. It's Whoa. titanium oxide based. And it actually prevents the virus and bacteria from sticking together on the surface 
of any surface um, because that's the only way that they breed and you know is when they stick together and this this coating actually prevents them from sticking together and therefore um, doesn't transfer um, effectively so it's like that's amazing 90 98 percent effectiveness of preventing um, surface transference of the you know COVID-19 or any future freaking bacteria it's all possible like it's incredible this is a technology coming out of Germany and uh, it's really 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 interesting yeah I'm I'm plugged into all these weird things I know (laughs) (laughs) but I I know this because of the uh, the the healing atmosphere project yeah yeah. we're actually going to we want to spray all the hospital rooms with this spray as, as, right. as part of um, you know our service and right. uh, maintain that yearly um, yeah. to prevent f- future risk of spreading disease and virus and all that it's awful yeah and i think that's going to have to be necessary because like you know every predictive model is like more of these type of things are going to be happening as the earth presumably is trying to get us off because we're like destroying it <laughs> so they're trying to get rid of us and you know we, we might have to take those kind of measures to to save our environment right stay healthy keep your uh stay healthy right like eat yeah. right get your immune system going because we don't know when the vaccine will be ready if it will be like it's, it's really uh you know it, it, we can't predict that people are just expecting a vaccine to to just show up magically but it doesn't work that way no don't worry trump's got it all taken care of it's already oh yeah he's we're already had it too he's immune <laughs> yeah yeah we're good don't worry <laughs> it's coming out on november 3rd the new vaccine don't worry the new <laughs> yeah it's, it's gonna be great the trump vaccine oh no it's really funny yeah. uh yeah that would be very very interesting november 3rd yeah I'm with bated breath. I'm yeah. waiting to see what will happen. And I really hope that there will be a peaceful, you know, if there's a transfer of power. I hope that it will be peaceful. Yeah, for sure. Well, really um, well, how can people find out more information about you? You've got your website and then yes, you do website. social media. Yes. I'm on Instagram. Mostly. I love Instagram. Um, my, my name on Instagram is at Mark Krista with a K, K R I S T A dot Kim. And my website is KristaKimStudio.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for talking to me. It was great to meet you. Oh, yeah. So nice to, to chat with you, chat with you, Brian. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on and inviting me. I had a great time. Yeah, thanks.
Thanks for your support. With a stranger that tripped you.